Well, a very good evening to you. Uh, my name's Stuart Holman. I'm the uh, Acting Rector and it is the best day of the year for me. I love this day more than any other day. This day is better than New Year's. This day is better than Christmas. It's even better than Boxing Day. Uh, because this is the day, right? This is the day when we celebrate salvation won for us. It's the best of the days. I mean, there's a whole series of days, aren't there, in a year when we look back in time and uh, we say, that was the day. This was the day when it happened. This one really matters, this day. And so we celebrate it. Uh, we do that with birthdays. We do it with anniversaries of all kinds. This is the best of them, I think. And one of the ways to really enrich a celebration, uh, to sort of deepen the experience and get the most out of it, is to revisit that great day from so long ago. Uh, better than any wedding day video, the Gospels actually take us and invite us to immerse ourselves in all of the details, in the story, to recount what actually happened. And so that's really what we're going to do right now. We're going to put our head into this part of the Bible. Hopefully you've still got your Bible open in John 20, uh, because that's our text for the day. That's really where our attention's going to be. And as we do, the first thing that I think really strikes us is the earthy reality to this passage. This is no kind of ethereal fairy tale. There's not a vague recollection of somebody or other. This is the accumulation of factual observations, kind of crammed with details. And together, all of these details build a cohesive picture of the most significant Sunday in history, I think. So we're just going to scan through them. So hopefully you've got your Bible open at uh, chapter 20. I'm at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So when is it? It's early in the morning. The sun is not even up yet. It's still dark. First clue that something is not right. Something is unusual is going to happen. The stone has been moved from the entrance to the tomb. Uh, Matthew's Gospel has a lot more detail, but we're simply told the stone has been moved. I suppose it wouldn't have been uncommon to roll a stone across the entrance of a tomb, which has been freshly used. It keeps the smell down. You might remember that with Lazarus. Then we have the introduction of the first eyewitness. And this text actually focuses in on Mary, Mary Magdalene. Even though the other Gospels tell us actually there was a whole group of women with Mary, John records Mary's story. She refers to the other women with her uh, in verse 2. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So there's the, the group of women, but this is all about Mary's testimony. What did she do? Well, she'd come to complete the traditional embalming process uh, after Jesus' horrible execution. You'll remember that the Sabbath day was almost approaching. It was almost sundown on the Friday. And so he was quickly, hurriedly put into the tomb. No proper process taking place. So she comes early on the Sunday morning to complete the process and no body. Does she immediately believe and start proclaiming the resurrection to all and sundry? She doesn't. Quite logically, she just assumes, well, somebody's stolen the body. Robbing graves was not unheard of at that time. So 
What does Mary do? Well, she runs to tell the leaders of the Christian community. Something's wrong. The body's missing. Just as an aside, if we were going to start a new religion based around the resurrection of its founder from the dead in the first century, you wouldn't have Mary as your primary witness. She's a woman. Her opinion weighed little in that day and in those times particularly if you were trying to persuade Israel's religious elite. But God, he arranged things differently. Mary Magdalene is a leading witness in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's how it was. So discovering this empty tomb, she runs to tell Peter and John. Uh, So I'm at verse 3 there. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Notice the details. Does it matter who got to the tomb first? Probably not really. Why bother recording it? Well, that's what happened. This is real life. Reading on from verse 5. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. More details here, a very clear description of exactly what was there inside that tomb of Jesus. No body, but the grave clothes, quite remarkably, are are there, set apart, folded there, and then the, the head... Uh, piece, whatever it was that was wrapped around Jesus' head, neatly fold up along the side there. This is if we're doing, you know, crime scene investigation here. This is this is an empty tomb that has not been raided by body snatchers or by vandals. All of the grave clothes are left neatly behind, carefully folded, uh, head wrapping. This is the scene of the first ever resurrection from the dead the facts are all there in earthy detail and the first witnesses to this empty tomb respond in an entirely natural and credible way they are surprised they are shocked they have no idea what's happened and so peter and john return home basically they don't know what to do next As readers of this historical document, all of this detail and careful observation verifies the eyewitness authenticity of this report. So this accumulation of of detail and fact doesn't tell the whole story. This isn't everything that happened on that Sunday morning. John doesn't tell us about an earthquake, uh, about the tearing of the temple curtain. We don't hear about many unusual occurrences. Actually, we don't hear about two disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and Jesus walking with them. Other Gospels tell us that. John just collects and selects these details because they are the important ones. It's all about the significance of these details. John could have told us a lot of things, but he selected these. It's built into the fabric of his narrative. I think one of the most significant details here for us is what Mary saw after Peter and John returned to the other believers. I'm at verses 11 and 12. You might want to have a look. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb 
and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. After so many other details, these details could easily be overlooked, but not to a Jewish reader, not to someone steeped in the Old Testament, because John's Gospel has something powerful to say in this very careful description of two angels framing an empty space where Jesus' body had laid. Two angels, either side of an empty space. Where else have you seen that in the Bible? Mary noticed it. John recorded it because the holiest of holy places in the entire Old Testament was an empty space. Between two angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant. At the heart of the tabernacle and later on the temple, in a place so holy that the high priest only once a year would go in there on the great day of atonement, there was this special box which actually contained the stones, for the, the, the Ten Commandments that, that, that God wrote, some other um, pieces. And, uh, but on top of this box cast in gold or perhaps uh, uh, carved, we don't know, facing each other were two angels with an empty space in between. We, we don't really know what it looks like. That's just somebody's guess. You know, in pretty much every other temple to every other god, the centre of the temple has an idol, has the god, perhaps some kind of representation of the god whoever it is. Um, But uniquely, at the centre of Israel's temple was an empty space. God is not an idol, nor is he to be represented by any kind of statue or carving. He is holy. He is holy beyond telling. He is not limited by any representation, by any image. Instead, in the absence of representation is the most holy place between the angels. And it's called the mercy seat. It's the place where atonement was made. Okay, This was the place actually where God was said to have received the sacrifices that were made. This was the place from where God proclaimed the forgiveness of sins and declared peace is now established between he and his people. That's atonement. And so on this resurrection morning, it seems that Mary was paying attention at the tomb. She recognised an empty space between two angels. And she remembered, and later on told told John, and maybe it was only later that they realised the full significance of what she saw in the tomb. That empty space where the crucified body of Jesus had been laid. Sins were forgiven there. Peace was established between God and his people. Atonement. That's what we're celebrating. It's wonderful, isn't it? See how kind of slowing down a little bit and looking at the details of the passage actually yields more joy for us as we celebrate? It's a great thing, isn't it? I continued to mull over this passage in the past week and there was something else that grabbed my attention 
something I don't think I've really seen before. I want to tell you about it. I found that the most moving aspect of this passage are Mary's responses. Everything is so real here. Everything is so raw. Here is one of Jesus' precious and closest friends. And she's going through an incredible range of emotions. Mary's grief captures our attention. Deserted by Peter and John, they've gone back to the other disciples. Mary's left standing outside the tomb, crying. Just crying. And in verse 13, as her tears tumble, she looks back inside the tomb. She sees the angels that we've just spoken about, and they ask her, Why are you crying? She says, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. And then in verse 15, she turns around and she sees someone whom she thinks is the gardener, and immediately she's asked exactly the same question. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Why cry? I want to say, why not? (laughs) She has just lost her dear friend to a horrible brutal execution having a good cry seems pretty normal to me worse still her grief has compounded now without a body she can't grieve properly through that process of embalmment that she had uh, prepared herself for but then one word changes everything Mary The way you said it, the way you always said it, actually cuts through the fog of her grief. And now she recognises him. I think she gives him a great big hug. She is absolutely delighted. Jesus is not dead. Well, he's no longer dead. And her despair has turned to delight. But more than Mary's delight, I think we see here Jesus' own joy. He's glad to see Mary. He's glad that he will again be among his friends. But there's something more to his joy. And I found it in verses 17 and 18. I'll read them to you again. Jesus says to Mary, Do not hold on to me, because I assume that she's giving him a hug. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. You can't hold on to a ghost or a vision, so Mary's pretty quickly established that Jesus is actually physically resurrected. That's great. But why does Jesus ask her to let him go? No doubt there are some very good pragmatic reasons. There are much bigger things in play now on this resurrection morning. He has a lot to do. He's got a trip to Emmaus to make plenty happening. No doubt all of that is true. But the reason that Jesus gives to Mary as to why she should break the embrace has something to do with his ascension. Don't hold on to me because I'm about to ascend to the Father. Instead, tell my brothers. What are you going to tell them? I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So why is hugging Jesus not appropriate? It's because he is ascending to the position of highest glory at the right hand of the Father. This is his rightful place. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. 
He is the eternal word who was with God and who was God even before the beginning, from all eternity. His person demands greater honour than an overly friendly hug. (laughs) On that Sunday morning, Jesus was resurrected, physically alive again. And Jesus says, look, this resurrection is actually just the beginning of my ascension to glory. That's the news. That's the these things that you are to go and tell the others in verse 18. Previously, Mary's been asked, why are you crying? Twice. Why so sad? Grief and the tears are no longer appropriate because this good news is not just about Jesus. All believers are included. Did you notice that? Jesus is ascending and he is returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Because atonement has been made at the mercy seat, the same relationship that Jesus has with his father and with his God is now shared with all believers. He is your God. He is your father. You see, this new relationship is guaranteed, it's assured, because Jesus himself is right there with God the Father at the throne of heaven. He is there to vouch for us. He is there to speak for us and to welcome us. Because of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, we are wonderfully included in his relationship with the Father. So Jesus' resurrection is proof that his sacrifice for sin was effective, that death has been defeated, that its power has been broken. All those things are true. But on that resurrection morning, Jesus wanted Mary to tell all his disciples that his resurrection is in fact the precursor to his ascension, representing the human race, risen from the dead, victorious over sin and Satan, fully obedient to the Father's will, perfected through his suffering, seated at the Father's right hand, is Jesus in the heavenly realm. And he is crowned with the glory that he had before all creation. He is Lord over all. That's why his ascension is a big deal. And it is opened up by his resurrection from the dead. And the amazing thing is that we are sharers in all of this. We are included in it. Jesus says, he is your father. Just as he's my father, he is yours. And just as he's my God, he is yours. You are with me in this. It is wonderful, wonderful news. I just wanted to remind us of that today. How good is it? That Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The implications of this, though, are going to take us to some interesting territory. In fact, if we really think this through, it's going to change our lives. Your normal life is going to be challenged by this. This is going to impact your family. This is going to impact your friends, your careers, maybe. You maybe want to block your ears now. Let's think this through for just a moment. From this historically reliable testimony, from the eyewitnesses in John's Gospel, we are assured that death is not the end. 
Just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, one day we too will rise from the dead. Our life now is just beginning. It's great and it's wonderful, but it's just beginning. Just beginning. I'm 56 years old. In polite company, that's called middle-aged. As my son reminded me yesterday, that means I'm halfway dead. But I don't care because I am going to live with the Lord Jesus forever in his glory. There will be no end to the wonder that I experience because of him. So many people, I think, feel the need to desperately squeeze every last bit of happiness out of this life. That's why we work so hard. It's why we play so hard. It's why people spend themselves entirely on things that they think are going to you know, stimulate those little happy hormones in their head. People around here are pretty good at that too. Although, not everyone. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead says, do not settle for happiness for just a short time, if you're lucky. Because there is so much more. There is joy that never ends. More than happiness, there is a deep satisfaction that we are loved by God himself. He is our Father. Do you know that you are loved without any conditions? You are loved without any what-ifs. You are loved eternally by God. Doesn't that change stuff for you? You don't have to fight to be loved all the time. You don't have to struggle for your significance in the world because you are loved by God. You know, I think for most of us, our happiness levels rarely hit those dizzying heights that we hoped for. I think most of us really, you know, we kind of carry our failures and our mistakes and our brokenness and our shame with us wherever we go. It's like we've got one of those great big heavy backpacks on and, you know, we just keep jamming more and more stuff in there and it gets heavier and heavier. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead takes that backpack and throws it away. As far as the east is from the west is how far God has separated our sins from us. When Jesus stands in front of us alive after the cross, we know that sin and shame and death are defeated. That's an objective reality. The physicality of Jesus standing there says... The sacrifice worked. It was sufficient and death is busted wide open. He got out of there. There is a way out of death which Jesus has pioneered. Objectively, we know that for he is risen from the dead. So when we're doubtful, when we're sad, when we're drifting, Jesus stands victorious over death. And he guarantees the same for us. His resurrection frees us from every heavy load. Sometimes we can wonder, who's in control of this world? Who is running the show? When things don't turn out like we, plan, like we hoped, like we planned, 
who's in charge. Because Jesus has ascended, there is hope. There is a future that is guaranteed for you and for me by the Lord Jesus, who is reigning, who is in control, who runs this place. He has a plan. It's a better plan than happiness. It is a plan that is full of joy and fulfillment and contentment, all wrapped up underneath the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. It doesn't get any better than Resurrection Sunday. It does not get any better. 